This episode is brought to you by VPN.com. What is VPN? It's Virtual Private Network. What now, does that now, mean? Now, Jason, hold on a second, because he is familiar with technology, and some of you might be, but when this was being described to me, I didn't really understand. But I went onto their website, VPN.com, and it really breaks it down in a user-friendly way. It's a service that takes traffic sent to and from your devices and encrypts it in what's known as a tunnel. This helps hide the content as well as the origin and makes it almost impossible for anyone from advertisers to hackers to find out what you're looking at on the web. And you've seen in Mr. Robot how Elliot can get into anyone's computer just by being on the same network. What do I mean by that? Let's give a real world example. Christina loves to go to Starbucks and she uses the Starbucks wireless internet. That's great. Free service. Awesome. But you don't really know how secure that network is. So there could be an Elliot type character on the other end of Starbucks who's been sitting there all day, who broke into the network and is just collecting data from everyone who's walking into Starbucks. If you use a VPN, he has no way of finding you. This even includes your home's wireless router. It gives you a whole layer of control over your personal information and digital privacy, no matter where you are so that it's only seen by the people who are meant to see it. Next issue I had once I learned what VPN was. There are so many VPNs out there. How do I know which one to use? Why are some of them more expensive than others? Well, with VPN.com, you have access to a detailed database of what each VPN is known for and what they're good and bad at. They spent thousands of hours visiting over 900 different VPN websites to make your search quick and easy. They've collected everything from pricing and features to protocols and device capability, making it effortless to find the VPN that best fits your needs. Some of you may be thinking, is this a service that I need? I think a lot of times there's a thought, this cannot happen to me. I'm going to put this very simply. 15.1 million people lost their identities in 2014 alone. 15.1 million. So that absolutely can happen to you. And $1,400 is the amount the average victim of identity theft pays in addition to 200 hours to fix that situation if they can. So what are you waiting for? It's free. VPN.com. That's VPN.com. Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff-Diaz. And welcome to the Coffee Clash Club. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Club. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians Episode Review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing Episode 10, The Art of the Deal. Written by Christina Strain and directed by Rebecca Johnson, IMDb gave this an 8.7. The synopsis is Quentin and Alice search the castle for an important object while Julia and Fenn work on an enemy. Now you might remember this director, Rebecca Johnson, from last season when she did Lesser Evils. So in 8.7, that's on par with episode 6, Do You Like Teeth? What do you think about that rating? Well, I'll tell you, I rated it a lot higher. I really enjoyed it. But I can see how they're comparable. We had three main storylines going on. And funny enough, the storyline about the key was probably the third tier in this particular episode. Yeah, that was the only part that disappointed me a little. I know that we had a lot to focus on and I'm excited about the areas we did go more in depth with. I really liked the pacing and suspense for the Julia Fenn and the fairies plotline. I thought that was very exciting. Gave us some good backstory we've been looking for for a while on the fairy queen. 
and I loved the penny stuff. Mm -hmm. Can't wait to get into it. It's going to be really hard because we are actually coming back around to potentially spoiler areas from the books. I don't know. We're not there yet, but I'm going to have to be careful when I do my theorizing. However, I feel like the last two episodes, I sort of said we didn't spend a lot of time in Fillory or with Margot and Elliot. It was pushed off to the side. Surely we're coming back to it. Well, now we must be coming back to it. But I still felt, while given a little more attention, it wasn't as interesting as everything else that was happening. Well, we always talk about the tasks that they have at hand, juggling all these characters. The first quarter of this season was all about Elliot and Margot. Mm -hmm. So they have to take a step back a little bit. And I agree with you with everything you enjoyed. But I do have to say, I thought it was okay that the key was third tier in this particular episode because they had to push those other storylines forward. And keep in mind, we haven't found that key yet. Josh has seen it. He knows where it is, but we don't have it. And that's going to be another storyline next episode. Yeah, agreed. And I don't mind less time being paid to Quentin, Alice, and Josh. They got more screen time last episode. There were some interactions with Elliot and Margot that felt a little rushed and contrived, which I don't normally feel about their characters or their plot lines. It was as though we just want to get out this main information very quickly of what's going on with Loria and the floaters and the, the war that's happening and... Uh, maybe just shelve the whole thing if we're not going to go to it right now. Listen, I know it breaks your heart to think that Elliot is that fast in bed, but it's just TV. <laughs> They're not going to show you the whole thing. Don't worry. Come on. I want some Elliot Edry action. But yeah, there was a lot of really great stuff to talk about. Yeah, there's almost too much to talk about. And we actually even had a lot of new faces and places this time as well. For faces, we had Uncle Edwin, Irene McAllister's uncle who works with the fairies. With the fairies? On torturing yeah. the captive fairies. Do you like that better? We have Dust, played by Andrew James Alien, a fairy who has been with the McAllisters since he made a deal with them hundreds of years ago. He seems to be their main slave fairy. Yeah, and I went from hating him to understanding what he's doing by the end. 100%. It's got to be torture for him, seeing his kind being taken away. I do have a lot of questions about that, though. I will save it for when we get to that area. We have Howard, which was a reintroduction, but I couldn't exactly remember what was going on with him. So we looked back. This is the librarian Penny inadvertently killed, led to his death. I don't know how you want to put that. He now wants him to join the librarian's book club. Yeah, just to refresh your memory, this is when we first met Harriet back in season two. And Penny's first job as a librarian when he had to get back an, a 10-year overdue book. That's right. He believes Harriet embedded that book with a curse. When Howard went to open it, it sent the dust in his face. He fell backwards and broke the emergency glass that automatically killed him. And finally, we had Hades, played by Michael Luoy, god of the underworld, who is there to speak with Penny, and we will have more on him because he is our character review for this episode. This actor is a powerhouse, and you could see because he just takes charge in that little scene. Very memorable. And a lot of people might know him from Hamilton. Great acting. I hope we get more from this guy. He was really captivating, and I particularly love the interacting with Penny. For places, we had the section of the library called Secrets Taken to the Grave, a restricted research section made in partnership with the rulers of the underworld that offers primal therapy for people about to move on to unload their conscience. 
And that seemed super intense. Very intense. And a very interesting storyline. I don't think I've ever seen something like that. It's probably the world's worst therapist in there. but Some creature with glowing red yeah, eyes. <laughs> that's creepy. I always go to imagination of something that I know, and it kind of resembles to me the third spirit in A Christmas Carol, where they kind of like everything you were hiding from, here it is. This is what happens. And, you know, there's no hiding from it. That's true. I also thought a little of the Grim Reaper because of the hooded figure. You mm. can't see much of his face. Speaking of creatures, we heard about this pig-like transport that takes underworld guests where they need to go next after they are finished in this room. But unfortunately, we don't get to see it. That was so cool because it reminded me of Seven Deadly Sins, which is a anime on Netflix. And he rides a, a huge pig. It's pretty cool. I've been a little disappointed with the creatures because we didn't get to see the pygmy dragon a couple episodes ago. Now we don't get to see the pig. But at the same time, it's, it's still kind of like reading a book. You still allow that into your imagination and into this universe. So when you think back at this show, that's still part of it. And that still has that fantasy allure to it. Absolutely. And finally, under Spells and Magic, we had the Metro card. Once visitors to the underworld unload, they get this pass so they are able to move on to the next place. That Metro card was cool because it looked like a New York Metro card, the design of it. Yeah, and talk about highly valued. It is the only way that you get out of there. And lastly, we had the sixth key. Quentin tells us in this chapter of the story, the daughter finally becomes the knight she's supposed to be. Her shield catches a moonbeam and it reflects it back. The moonlight has to hit the three keystones in the light of two half moons in order to reveal the key. And we don't know much more about it yet because we haven't actually found it. We don't know what it's going to be able to do or who it will belong to. We do know from narrowing down last time, we are down to Margot and Katie as far as who the keys belong to that we have yet to find. And we have no signs of Katie at this point. She's probably trying to find how to get to Penny. And Margot is in Fillory. It looks like it might have to be her task with the fairies. Either she takes it nefariously without Julia and the fairy queen okaying it, or something happens where they end up uh, agreeing to take it. You're talking about the seventh key, the one that exists in the fairy realm. I believe that's the same key. No, there's the sixth key that they found out based off the book is in the throne room of White Spire. And that's the one that Quentin, Alice, and Josh are looking for right now with the reflected moonbeams. But you're right that we also heard about the seventh and final key that the Fairy Queen tells us exists in the fairy realm and is the only thing keeping it from falling apart. It's all that keeps it together. So we will never be able to take that key. And I don't know how we're going to get around that one, like you said, if it's going to be a devious sneak thing, or if she'll finally allow us, or maybe we don't have to remove it from the realm in order to do what we need to do with it. That's what I'm hoping for. Did she specifically say seventh key? Yes. Okay. No, she said no. we we have a key. another key that you don't know about. Okay, I was going to wait to say this, but I'll say it now. I think that's the sixth key because Josh f sees it once he smokes that herb that he made last season for them to go into the fairy realm. Remember Julia had to go into the fairy realm? Yeah, well, he sees where it is. After he smokes, he says, I know how to find it. So that is a possibility. But yeah, we can break this down more later. I think there's a lot of questions. I wish we knew more about what 
the book says. Of course, it only reveals itself one chapter at a time. So we don't know what the final chapter is going to get into. Hopefully our clatchers aren't yelling at us right now. I think I'm right, though. I think I'm right. I feel like they mentioned Seven at some point later when they were talking about it. And it wasn't the Fairy Queen, but I can't remember if and who said that about it. They also made it sound like that key was a mystery, whereas we do know about this sixth key and the book has been revealed. Right, but we can't find it. Like I thought it all fit in because everything we were doing, we still couldn't find the key. Josh smokes that herb that is the same herb from last season when they go into the fairy realm. Mm -hmm. And it would make sense because we said they're parallel universes. So the key is there in the throne room, but in the fairy realm. So that would make sense. And that's why this episode, we still haven't gotten that key specifically. So if that's the case, you think it's going to be Margot, who is the one responsible to find or get this key? That's That's a pure guess, but I believe so. I'm not excited about that just because of, like you said, the way the relationship's been going, the way she feels about the fairies and what that might mean about the magic entailed versus Julia finally establishing some kind of working relationship with them. And that also leaves open a lot of questions. Where would the seventh key be then? How does Katie get involved in that? Does she find the final key? I mean, that's... I don't know how we get there or how that fits into the story. I almost imagine the seventh key would have been left for Quentin and he would have had to mm. get the whole group together to go right. find it. Like, But I, they've been going in chronological order. Like they wouldn't talk about the fifth key when we haven't obtained the fourth key yet. You know what I mean? So it, it still makes sense chronologically mm. that we don't know anything about the seventh key. Oh, yeah. Thus far, that's been true. I just wonder how Katie works into this to get the final key if that's... Well, she's looking... The she's way got the other is. key right now doing something. Well, also, that was an interesting point, that she took the fifth key, which is the one we found last time, the unity key, because she wants to talk to Penny. Now, thus far, anybody that's w- wanted to talk to him takes the truth key to reveal him, but he's in the underworld and they were able to communicate with him last time via this almost two-way radio when they held the key. I wonder if that's what she's doing and we didn't see that in this episode. So will the communication come after Penny has already decided what he has about his destiny and that's going to be really rough. So speaking of that, let's get into our plot because we open up with Alice being mad. That while Q doesn't trust her, he is willing to give Katie the fifth key. First, you don't want to help us with the quest. Then, suddenly, you want magic so badly that you nearly kill yourself. That's not fair. None of that is fair. Okay, well then, what is it? Do you, Are you with us? Do you want magic back? Of course I want magic. Okay, well then, what changed? Why now? He says he knows Katie's motivations, but what about Alice? Is she with them? And why does she want this book so badly? Q thinks there's something she's not telling him, but they need her help. So yet again, we are still suspicious of Alice. What are you thinking now? Have your opinions changed at all? Well, the end of last episode, we saw the way she eyed the book, and it was a little different than normal. She felt a little, um, her eyes looked a little hungry, as the kids say. We were suspicious about it. And then at this point, I was like, yeah, okay. We still can't trust this woman. She's always been about herself. And it's pretty disappointing because I really enjoyed her as a character. 
in the first season. Not saying I don't like her character. I mean, like, liked her as a good person, meaning. Now I feel like anything she does, there's a selfish bone to it. Other people have been talking about this, and they agree with you in the sense that starting out in our story, Alice was kind of the goody-goody, and Julia was flirting with a lot of dangerous, dark side-type magic. Whereas now, after everything that's happened to them, Julia is trying to use her magic for good, and Alice is being consumed by this desire for all power, all knowledge, and maybe it's turning her a bit bad. However, I had the exact opposite thoughts after this scene. I've been suspicious of her this entire season. But in her interactions here with Q and later on in the throne room, she makes some really good points that make it seem like it's more about Quentin's behavior and the fact that he thinks he's special. He's the only one that can hold the book. He's the narrator. She kind of puts forth those same ideas we've been talking about periodically with Quentin, that he is completely entrenched in his own feelings, his own problems, has difficulty kind of getting out of it. She says, you think you're the only one that goes through depression, anxiety? But I read right through that. That was being manipulative. You think that was sheer manipulation? I think she really felt that way. Well, keep in mind, Q just saw her at the library. She didn't tell him they were coming. She wasn't even helping them with getting that key. She was there on her own accord. And at that point, he really stopped trusting her. Yes, the things she did say about Q... We have been saying, but I believe she's using that truth to get what she needs. I agree that I don't think it's her only motivation. I think there's more that she wants here, but I don't know that this particular conversation was a tactic. I think it is genuine relationship stuff that the two of them have been having for a while. And I do find it bizarre that she was honest with him and came right out and said, yes, I'm working for the library. I wonder why she would tell him that if she is completely hiding everything from him. But anyhow, alone, he then tells Julia, the book says the sixth key is in the throne room at Whitespire. She magically takes away his headache, and they both agree to never take magic for granted again. I like that, because for a long time, all we've been seeing is how magic can mess things up, and should they really get it back, this is a glimmer of something that it can do that's good. Yeah, definitely a glimmer of something that it can do that's good. I think it's more of a reflection on Julia and how pure she's being. We've discussed how humans tend to mess things up and their ability to use magic oftentimes comes from a selfish point of view. And we are seeing more and more that Julia is anything but selfish utilizing this magic. And, you know, she grows more powerful the more she helps people. I'm starting to see that maybe the negatives that come from magic is from the human's inevitable selfishness that comes into play. Yeah, it's this old conversation, right? That this thing isn't innately good or bad. You shouldn't blame it on the magic. Well, maybe we just shouldn't have that anymore. I don't mean to get off on a sidebar discussion, but kind of the way, if you think of how people feel about guns, and there's all these arguments, well, it's not the gun itself. It's not the weapon itself, because magic in the wrong hands can be a weapon. We've seen it utilized by people such as the beast in completely selfish, self-serving ways that only hurt other people. We haven't seen it used for a lot of innately good reasons, but like you say, that's why I enjoy Julia's journey. It starts out small here, but then she goes on to say, despite how big their needs are, she needs to help the fairies first. This is something she can do something about, and she's going to use her magic for that good. So yeah, it's the tool, and whose hands does it wind up, and what do they do with it? Next, Alice, Q, and Josh go to the Muntjac to tell Margot and Elliot about the sixth key. 
I love that Josh is acting like a child. He's very excited to be back with the group questing on a flying boat and in fillery. They find out they don't need to worry. Tick is up north near Loria. The throne room is empty. So the book says that the sixth key will only reveal itself in the light of two half moons, which is a thing that happens in filleries. Like two black and white cookies split apart to form one giant white cookie. A cookie moon. <laughs> which happens tonight. Here they get into this conversation about the fact that Fillory is at war with the Lorians and the floaters. And Q wants Margot and Elliot to join them in the key quest, but they say they're committed now to Fillory. They need to try to stop this war while he continues along. Well, first, with the way Josh is speaking and how he compared the two moons with having two white cookies, <laughs> white and black cookies, and you take it apart, that coupled with the previously seen mm-hmm. section, and they brought up his cooking. And even further, the fact that we haven't seen Josh talk about cooking in a long time. I knew somewhere in this episode, it's going to have to do with something Josh has cooked. But also, it was a pretty funny moment in a very serious conversation. Yeah, well, they're doing a good job of, again, making Josh seem like kind of a sidebar the whole episode. The one who's getting dorkily excited about everything that's happening. I think our group has a tendency to underestimate him because of that, but we'll see by the end of the episode. Maybe they shouldn't do that. Is it dorkily or dorkishly? (laughs) I think it's made up either way. Okay. And they're at war. Did you see that coming? Yeah, well, we talked about how it was bound to be that the Florians were on the verge of an uprising. They had this rebellion against Elliot and Margot. And now I'm sure we have Tick off somewhere inciting the people even more. It was kind of inevitable, right? I suppose so, but I didn't really think that they would all war with each other that quickly. And I'm probably way off on this. I still pictured Tick in that rowboat because they were very far away and they're just rowing two people, rowing and Tick sitting there. They probably just went to the nearest, I don't know, island, something nearby and then figured out how to get back. Okay. But here's what I didn't see coming. The fact that the Lorians and floaters would team up against them. Yeah, I did not see that coming. I am so angry. This is the couple of scenes that felt a little bit off to me. Margot and Elliot try to petition them to pull back their advancements, but they both decline. With magic gone, Loria says they have the advantage over Fillory for the first time. Idri even denies his marriage, his relationship with Elliot. That's harsh. What a dick move. I mean, I thought they actually cared for each other. And it's starting to feel more and more like we used to think the humans were what was wrong with Fillory. But it seems like the more selfish people are the Florians, Fillory folk, and of course these floaters. Oh, the natives. I I think maybe it seems like what's been holding them back for so long is magic. And by having these people in rulership that could potentially squash any rebellion, maybe it stopped them from trying before. Now there's this power vacuum, and that's always what happens in these cases, right? Everybody vying for who's going to be the next on top. I guess if you think about it, and you think about the Lorian storyline, they live in a very barren climate, and it's always difficult for them to find food. And now you have Fillory, which is very decadent, very lush, a lot of mushrooms at this point, but still, (laughs) I guess I can see a reason for them to want to go to war. We don't really have a backstory for the floaters, except for the fact that we know that if the apple doesn't fall far, far from the tree, that kid 
is a jackass. Yeah, and they call her the Stone Queen. There's a lot of mentions to Stone when it comes to them. Perhaps their island is not as fertile either. But also, we know that the Lorians don't have magic of their own, even before this started. So there has always been kind of an imbalance. And you have to wonder why the floaters and the Lorians didn't try teaming up before this. The Stone Queen immediately comes in and tries to offer her horrible son to Idri instead. Or how about the fact that she saw the toad bite on her son's pee-pee? Yeah, she knew. That's weird. So again, when they were in power, she was just going to go with it. But the second they're knocked down a peg, they're off looking to the next person they can ally with. Why is she looking at his pee-pee-dee-pee? Well, that whole family is just freaking bizarre. I don't know. But the biggest thing that they said here was that Deposed rulers don't get their thrones back. It's been mentioned a few times that Elliot and Margot have been overthrown. Technically, they're not rulers of Fillory and can never be again. They seem pretty confident by the end of the episode, and I don't know if this is overcompensating, that if they get magic back, the Florians will be so happy for that that they'll gladly give them the rulership back. Do you think that's the case? Well, they're very heavily dependent on magic again. You know, if we get the magic back, I guess it could be pretty persuasive magic, that is. I think if I was given magic, I could be persuaded to do some weird shit. But if they have it back now, they also have some of their power. So why agree to put these humans back into leadership that they've never really liked? I'm not sure how I think that's going to go. And I feel Elliot and Margot are feeling very rocky about it as well. What kept them in line was God-fearing, right? They feared Ember and Umber. Mm. We have a demigod, Julia, and I she's think getting more and more ticket. powerful. Because if you just have regular magicians in rule, they're not that different from other people who have magic. You need somebody on a higher level. So if she was there, perhaps that could do it. I think so. There's going to have to be a really big display of her power in order to get them on board. But there you go. So then my next question is, would you want to lead out of fear and not love? Or do you think they'll believe they'll gain the love now that they have control with fear? I think that's the only way Julia will agree to it. If she keeps going along this track, she's not going to want to rule like that. She wants to help people do good. And in fact, Elliot made a good start of that by the end of the scene here, telling Idri that he's sure there are some unknowing magicians amongst the Lorians. They can come identify them and educate them, teach them to be as powerful and use their innate magic. While this is going on, Quentin, Alice, and Josh are sneaking around the throne room trying to line up the mirrors to the keystones. They need to set them up the right way to bounce the light around. But Quentin and Alice keep getting distracted, arguing with each other. He's asking her if she works for the library, continuously mistrusting her. She says she is, but she's not trying to stop them. Neither is the library. They're helping them. They want magic back as bad as the humans do. And Josh is sort of playing the mediator, trying to calm the two of them down so they don't get discovered. But there's a bit of a struggle with that when he finds out his ex, Victoria, is dead. They just sort of throw it out there. They don't even explain to him what happened. And now we don't entirely know that for sure. They still have not gone back to the Victoria Harriet situation. Makes me really anxious. <laughs> But as you said earlier, after smoking a bit, he calms back down and he figures out where the key is. But they kind of leave us hanging on that for this episode. 
So again, I believe that's him noticing the key in the other realm. Inevitably, the knowledge that we have now, they're either going to have to destroy the fairy's kingdom to get the key or give up on the key quest altogether. Could Jane Chatwin come in and help to make some kind of time loop world where the fairies could live in? Well, I believe the answer will be in the next episode, which is 23, where they will venture into a parallel world. Mm. And maybe they'll be able to steal the key there. Without disrupting, like, I don't know how that affects the present. She seems to have this alternate timeline going in the Clock Barons, where as long as she doesn't leave there, she's okay. So I'm thinking, could they possibly do the same thing for the fairies? Then they would be protected, kind of left on their own as they've wanted, so they won't be bothered by humans or anything ever again, but we could still have the key. I don't know, maybe that's just wishful thinking. Well, I do have some insight, but we'll talk about that in the spoiler section. Ooh, exciting. Okay, for now, let's go over to the fairies, as well as Julia and Fen. We find out that Skye agreed to help with the other fairies to escape, but they need to get the necklaces off first. So Julia wants to get one so she can examine it and figure it out. Fen still hates them and is having a lot of difficulty with this, but she agrees to help. Well, we saw this coming. We saw that she would have some internal struggle when it came to helping the fairies. But we knew that the show choosing Fen to see that tortured fairy would only help propel her in the right direction. And I guess we learned that they can't just detach the necklace. I thought with her godlike power, she'd be able to just... Take it off. Yeah. I know. But that wouldn't be as fun. And let's talk about the magic that is real, and that's technology here. Smartphones. And I always thought whenever we're in Fillory and they're using magic... They don't have internet. They don't have smartphones, computers. What would they think if they got their hands on one of those? They've kind of removed it from the show altogether. I mean, even when they're on Earth, they don't really utilize any of that stuff. Well, they did this episode. Fen went ham on emojis. I know. It was bizarre that it wasn't even one of our Earth characters. It was Fen to bring that up. I really enjoy her performances, and especially this next scene where they go to Irene, and they are pretending that they want to catch their own fairy. Now, I thought Julia's acting was a little transparent. I mean, I know she's thinking on her feet here, but she says she dealt with a younger fairy in exchange for a Snickers bar. She couldn't think of anything better than that. If I was Irene, I would have been like, uh-uh, I see what's going on here. Whereas Ben's story actually is based in truth, and so it's very believable. She says, well, she didn't make a deal. Her family made it for her, and she didn't really have a choice. But as you noticed... Irene's interest, I think, is piqued and distracted. She almost stops listening to what they're saying anyway, so it doesn't matter. As soon as she hears something about a younger fairy, and I thought for sure you were right that that was going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think, by the way, this episode ends up not really. But she jumped right up or sat right up and was like, how old? I know, right? Well, there's something to do with babies again. Remember last season, the fairy wanted a human baby. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily babies, but it has something to do with young. Mm. And they kept talking about how this one fairy is very old, the one that's been with them forever. Clearly, they can live a long time. So maybe that's what's unusual, that she thinks the majority of them have been in captivity. Uh, So how could they be breeding new young fairies? But she also knows that's not entirely true because Julia is offering to bring her some from elsewhere. And it seems like this is the first she's heard of that. She tells them that if they are, in fact, going to get one of their own, 
they need a collar. This is what helps them from getting out of control. They can get one from her uncle Edwin in exchange for bringing her another fairy. And this is where we're introduced to the character of Edwin. First off, I love how the show, even when they progress characters, they don't forget the foundation of each character. We've been discussing how Fen has has grown so much. But we see in this conversation, she's almost childlike again. Almost saying the wrong thing. Fillery, just bring it, throwing that out there mm-hmm. as if it's nothing, a Julia nothing has kind to of keep knowledge. Stepping yeah. on it. Pretty clever. I didn't think, I couldn't understand how Julia would be able to manage this, but she's using Irene's selfishness for power. Agreed. Yeah. Against her. Yeah, that's what I mean. She, there was a lot of red flags and indicators that somebody who's paying attention would see right through this charade. But I believe because of that greed, she was blinded. And she also very quickly shunts them off onto Edwin. And it's sort of the end of their interaction for a while. Edwin is explaining to them how the collars fasten around the fairy's neck and then activate. Of course, if they try to use magic, it will kill them. He also won't tell her how it works or what powers it. It's a family secret. But they are introduced to Dust, who has been with the family for over 400 years. Edwin has had him since he was 16. We get the bad news. The only way to remove a collar is through a machine he has in his lab. Meanwhile, Skye says she spoke to a few of the other fairies, but they didn't believe her. Several of Irene's family have arrived. Many have brought fairies with them to break bills. And at this, Julia has an idea. So I was right last week because I was thinking she doesn't have a plethora of fairies. So it wouldn't make sense for her just trying to save a few. The situation wouldn't be that dire. The circumstances wouldn't be that precious if it was only one or two fairies. So I just guessed that it would be other families in power. Yeah, well, it kind of makes sense. She doesn't personally have more than that, but the rest of her family, her extended family, does. Such awful depictions of slavery. You know, they're all getting together for this very lavish dinner. Meanwhile, the fairies are in some back basement type room locked up in a prison cell. And we see that Julia's idea, pretty radical idea. I mean, I'm not sure how she really thought this was going to work, but she goes to Fillory to proposition the fairy queen herself. Yeah, I couldn't believe this was happening. Right? That's balls. And the queen tells her fairies haven't lived on Earth for hundreds of years. She doesn't believe that there are other fairies because humans hunted them almost to extinction, at which point they came to Fillory. Very interesting background. I mean, we've been talking about how we don't know much about these fairies, and they've been giving us a little bit at a time, a little bit. Now we get a really big background. This started bringing up one of the biggest questions for me. Did the fairies start out on Earth? They made it seem like this was their original home place, and they only discovered Fillory when they were being hunted. Have they always been there? How did they get there? How did humans not know about them? Well, there's a lot of things that's lost in history, and I guess... Even the fairy queen said how quickly the oppressors forget. But also, I always seemed to wonder when I was a kid, I think I saw it in a movie or a show when I was very young, where they discussed how Earth had magic before, the real world had magic, and we lost it a long time ago and forgotten about it. And that just piques my interest. Maybe we all had magic back then. Yeah, we've spoken before about how it seems like humans have been accessing magic through these sort of back roads or less natural formulas such as tutting that we kind of thought this was the only way they'd ever been able to get to it. But maybe it wasn't like that. Maybe there were more magicians and there were magical creatures on earth just as there are in Fillory. The rarest 
of all magical creatures, in fact, fairies living alongside of them. And that made me think about what you said, that the gods perhaps were punishing humans for the things that they were doing with it. Maybe they were bad with their magic and it was taken away from them. And that's when they started trying to find these alternate routes. And so I'm starting to think you could be right about the lessons we need to learn. Yeah. The only thing is, I think it was only 400 years, right? Didn't they say? Is that enough time for us to have had magic? No, he says he's been with this family for 400 years. So we have to assume it's around that time because he came to them when the rest were running, but maybe they were being hunted for a while yeah. before that. And perhaps even before that point, they had coexisted peacefully somehow. Maybe humans didn't know about them. I mean, I think about the fact that the fairies can't be seen to humans. Originally, was that the way it always was? Or is that a way for them to protect themselves? Right. Since yeah. they started being hunted, what came first? So this brings up a ton of questions for me, which I like. I like that it's so complicated. And we can see now why the fairy queen is so prickly when it comes to these situations. I mean, I can't believe, regardless of what Julia said, that she ever agreed to come back to Earth, now knowing what we do. It was Fen, in fact, who convinced her that there is a lost tribe and they're not trying to trick her. After all, based on everything Fen has been through, why would she come back here and speak with the queen if it wasn't true? So she joins them, and once back on Earth, Julia tells her they need her to put on the slave collar to get her in direct contact with Irene. And this is really a bridge too far, where I said they had to kind of stretch certain things, and they were a little contrived to make the plot work. I don't think this queen is ever putting on that collar. Yeah, that didn't seem believable enough. Knowing what we know about the queen, seeing her in action, this was very out of character for her. That's a lot of trust to put into one human who's a group of the people that have been trying to backstab you this whole time, who you've been trying to overthrow, who you have this big plan, who the humans as a whole have been oppressing you. And it's like, and they had to agree to enslave some of themselves just so the rest could get free. Yeah. Now, this free tribe is never going to agree, not even one of them, to put that slave collar on again for a minute. I don't think so. Never mind a queen. Exactly. Now, I know that an influencing factor here was Julia showed her she had magic. She was very afraid if we go in there with no way to overthrow them, what is your plan? We need a way to defeat them. And when she sees, not only does she have magic, but she's God-touched. She has strong magic. Maybe she thinks no matter what they throw at them, Julia will be able to get her out of it. No, I don't think she thinks that plainly. But I think also she was feeling how genuine Julia is. And something that was different about her than other humans. She was starting to feel that. And it was only a matter of time till it was proven. And that she had to save her people. But we do come to find out later... This faction willingly agreed to put themselves into slavery so that everyone else could be saved. Did the queen know that or was she learning that at the same time we were? I'm not sure. We do know that she wasn't part of that original group. It was her mother. Right. I can't believe her mother would have never told her that story. Maybe out of protection. Um, And maybe she just assumed they were all dead. Well, she knew some of it was true. Because she did know they had been hunted and chased over to Fillory. Uh, As far as this small group, I'm not sure. We see the queen agree, and Julia pretends to deliver her to Irene. Irene is taking orders via phone, seemingly for more dust from people. 
that she has been making and I don't know if she's selling what's going on here. But she tells Julia they'll talk more about this later. And then just leaves her and Fen to wander the house. I mean, that's, that's also a little bit of a stretch that Irene trusts her so much at this point. She doesn't know Julia that well. And I know she wants things from her, but Julia is able to kind of start snooping around. I don't think she knew that Fen was there. Fen was hidden. And so was Julia. Well, I mean, at this point, Irene walked away and just kind of left Julia. Because she was on the phone call and said, we'll talk about this more later. I don't know if she thought she was leaving, but uh, anyway, she does start looking around. As dust takes the queen back to the room where the fairies are imprisoned. Well, I think she was consumed, overly consumed with that phone call because it's obviously they've been delivering this dust to some higher power that they're afraid of. And they're asking for more a lot quickly. Oh, you thought it was a higher power. I just took it to be other magicians she's in contact with that are buying it from her for a very high price. Like she's a dealer with a rare Mm. product. Well, you might be right about that. But regardless, I think she was overwhelmed by that. Mm -hmm. I mean, her greed is evident. Yeah. So she wasn't thinking about little things like that. Well, big mistake, because they do start finding shit out here. Fen goes looking for the collar-breaking machine, and she sees Dust bring a fairy into the chair. Heartbreaking. How he gets him to trust him and just willingly sit down in there and then decapitates them. Yeah, I feel really bad for him. Again, I, I hated him at first. I was like, this guy is such a traitor. But he is legit suffering day in and day out, having to do that, having to gain the trust of these fairies, his own family, and then watch it happen in front of him time and time again. When he thinks there's so few of them left in the world at all. Yeah, well, in the earth world, yeah. But in his mind, it's all in the cause of the free fairies and, and escaping extinction. Yeah, this was another one of my questions. So we do know that originally he agreed to enslave himself, and I don't know how many other fairies were with him at the time, to let the larger group flee and get out safely to Fillory. And the main point of that was so that the humans wouldn't chase them, wouldn't follow them down. They would only focus on the ones that are here, and they would be able to escape kind of into anonymity. It's been hundreds of years later. Generations have gone by. Do you think that they would know to go looking for them? And how would they get to Fillory when we see how difficult it is to find this place? I mean, at this point, is there still a need for them to even stay here is what I'm asking. Well, they can't get away. Okay. So it's just the fact that they're stuck now. Yeah. Okay. And I think while there was still magic, they were just workers. It's now that there's no magic that they're actually being Mm. cut and... and, um, mutilated Mm -hmm. i believe it's a guess that would make a lot more sense because i had said as well how do they keep getting them to buy this we're keeping you safe from the bad magicians thing if they're cutting off limbs but if that's a recent development yeah that could add up well while ben is doing that julia does a spell to watch irene's conversation at dinner and hears her saying she may have secured a new source for the fairies The queen in the cell starts to talk to the other fairies, who she sees many of are missing limbs, fingers, hands. And I think this really sparks her into wanting to help them and fight for them. Absolutely. She's a very proud woman, fairy woman. She gives this great speech where she says, We are spun from divine inspiration, blessed, the living embodiment of magic. She will restore their strength, and when they are free... 
They will hunt down the slavers, torture, and kill them. That was very in character. Mm. I could believe that. And at that moment, I was feeling like, for the first time looking at her, like, hell yeah. You know, the show has put me through so many different emotions. I was very divided last night. Do I root for them? Do I not root for them? Well, in the end... It's still violent. She still wants murder, which should be a bad thing. But it does sort of make us understand. And we had said, how could you possibly understand the things she's been doing to Margot and Elliot and Fillory? But maybe if we knew more, we would. And I do kind of feel that way now. Well, they've been enslaved by these people and they're just chopping off limbs. Yeah, time to kill them. Well, Fen takes dust at knife point. She brings him back and explains she found out the machine decapitates fairies. Explains is the wrong word, but I really enjoyed seeing Fen this angry and this passionate. This is where he tells us fairy deals can't be broken. That's the magic that controls the collars. That's what keeps them here. And he was the one who made that deal hundreds of years ago. When he did that, their queen at the time found passage to the New World, and he, along with several others, agreed to stay behind and bind themselves to the McAllisters, a deal that would keep them from following the rest. As their generations died, though, he began to lose faith in their sacrifice. But this is where the fairy queen explains to them that her mother led them to Fillory, where they were born, so his sacrifice was worth it. They have continued to live and survive there. At this point, Julia is thinking there must be a way to break a fairy deal. And I was thinking the same thing. Come on. There's no way. There's no end around for this one. I will not do it. Our deals are the foundation of our culture and key to our survival. You are their queen. You came here to save them. If you don't, what's the point? Fairies are known for honoring their deals. When we break them, we lose the people's trust and our limited leverage, which we need for survival. Without that, we are weak and vulnerable. I can see it in the queen's face. She's very torn at this point. She knows that the very key, pardon my pun, that the very key to their survival is their deals. Yeah, but do you think anybody is going to lose faith in them or hold it against them once they find out this one time they broke the deal in order to stop the extinction of their race almost from people that were enslaving and torturing them? Isn't that a little different? Well, we're just dumb humans. What do we know? <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm missing something. Uh, but Edwin discovers this is happening. He walks in on them. He's about to take Skye away, and that really pushes the queen into making the decision. She decides to do it. She writes a symbol in blood on the wall and puts her hand to it. Which breaks the deal, and they all are able to disappear. This was amazing. This was such an energizing moment Mm. in this episode. And then they reappear, only because we're seeing it from the eyes of Julia. Yep. And they kill Edwin brutally. Yeah. I, w- I thought that was a little kind of like zombies, like, rah, rah. but they deserved it. They deserved it. Well, what about this following part was way worse even than that. They come out to the dinner table and just begin murdering the entire family where they sit. Yeah, but they made a point to remind us right before they came in how much of an asshole Irene is. Oh, I know. It was still just pretty uh, it looked like, gory. And, it looked and, like a horror movie when yeah. they were done. Um, and Irene who is hiding under the table, runs out at the end of the scene. So does she make it? What's going to happen with her? She's the worst one. I hope she doesn't get away. 
I, I really wonder. I mean, without the dust, she doesn't have any powers, but she's probably got her own supply back, you mm-hmm. know, stashed. Um, that's something we'll have to look out for, for sure. And if she keeps using it, it's going to continue to eat away and slowly kill her again. She's certainly not going to have Julia on her side to help her this time. I think at this point, the fairies are going to be safe from her. Because the deal's broken, she can't even see them anymore. Oh, they're all going to go back, I yeah. think, now. Even if there are fairies hidden as well, if she's got other ones, she won't be able to see them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. So the only way to take off these necklaces is to break the deal. Because we did learn that the deal is putting on the necklace. That's the reason why it can't be taken off. That's the deal Dust originally made. He pretty much allowed them to enslave them. And that's what kept them there. Their magic is extremely powerful. And uh, we find out something is going to come of this. While the fairy queen is grateful to Julia, she says there are consequences to broken deals and now their word will mean nothing. And maybe it doesn't just mean mean nothing to others, but literally they lost some kind of power. That may be the case. That went into that. Which is... is, uh... I mean, it's sad, but if this breaks the rift with the fairies and the humans and Florians, if, if at all, possibly, uh, they won't need to do that. They won't need that power. Of it feels like deals. it's worth it, right? Um, there could be more that we don't know. At, there is more that we don't know. <laughs> at this point, she says, of all the humans who have sought her out, Julia is the only one who didn't do it for personal gain. If more were like her, they might have been able to coexist. This is when she feels comfortable enough to tell her. She knows they're on a quest for the seven keys, and they have one in the fairy realm. It's what created and sustains it, and without it, everything collapses, so they can never give it to them. So this brings to mind the question we've been having since episode one, that quick scene we got twice of a world being destroyed. Is that their world being destroyed? I don't think she would say that. Well, that could be... If that was the case, like you know, the key is the only thing that keeps it functioning. If it's already falling apart. Well, maybe it's not linear. Maybe that's a future view of it. Hmm. That wouldn't explain still why we saw that weird shot of the Netherlands library looking all askew then, which we got right after seeing the world kind of collapsing. That might just be the library being askew because of lack of magic. Hmm. Something to think about. So we have quite a predicament under our hands. We're finally starting to sway a little bit towards wanting the fairies to be good people again, wanting them to work together with us. We have at least one human who I don't believe will be so easily persuaded to be on their side again, and that's Margot. I feel that if there's anyone who the queen has done the most injustice to or has had the most relations with... After Fen. Well, most relations, it's Margot mm-hmm. speaking back and forth. Yes, Fen was probably, she lost her toes, she lost her baby, but there was so much back and forth with Margot and her. Uh, I th- and keep in mind, Margot didn't see the human fairies at all, didn't see what they I were like. I think that's going to be the biggest part. Now it's after the fact, and it's going to be a lot harder to have that emotional impact resonate with her. Unless maybe she sees all of these ones that are coming back so broken and tortured and, and whatever. It'll be up to Julia to convince her. 
Well, now let's go to our last location and my favorite for the episode. We start where Penny is reshelving in the library when Howard invites him to that book club. He initially turns it down and then has another run-in with Sylvia, who says when magic went out, her family was all killed and they moved on. They're not in the underworld because the underworld is just a way station. She's trying to explain why she did what she did to Penny. And in fact, the deal she made cut one million years off her one billion year sentence. Do you forgive her? I do not. I don't necessarily forgive her, but I understand more now. I mean, a billion years is so long. Even taking a million off of that, is that worth risking somebody else's entire freedom and life just for that little piece of it? Well, she was also still a little mad at him for leaving her. Yeah, agreed. Um, I just think they're not going to do enough over the course of this episode to make me have sufficient sympathy that I agree with Penny for giving her that pass. I would not have done the same if I was in his position. This is also where Penny sees the secrets taken to the grave room and Sylvia explains what it is. She also says they write down everything of note before giving you the Metro card that takes you to the pig. I thought that was interesting. Another reference, we have the library writing down every person's life story in existence. We have them keeping a chained up Cassandra slash Alice who writes down events that are going to happen in the future. And now we have this secret research room writing down all hidden information. Well, could it possibly be the last judgment of where they go after? It must have something to do with that, right? Because they said it's in partnership with the people who run the underworld. Well, this is new now that there's no magic. So maybe this is the only way to oh, figure it out. Is? Yeah. It's a new room? Yes. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. Hmm, so they're just relying on people being honest? No, the, there's something about Something's that room. happening that makes There's you... a creature in there. Creatures still have magic. So they're utilizing whatever power this creature has. To, to force them to tell to, the truth. To wait and weigh out where they go. Mm-hmm. Which then the Metro card leads to another creature who still has the ability. So it's just a slower way of doing it without magic. Yeah, and they do say the pig takes them on to wherever they're going next. So I guess be that good or bad. Penny watches another man come out of the room. And when this man shares about the person who questioned him with the glowing red eyes, Penny is very manipulative. He tells him he must be going somewhere really bad. (laughs) Very clever, very well done. Penny's character had very good lines, even in the beginning when he's talking to Henry. The way he says no to him was very Penny-like, and I just love that kind of attitude. I love his acting, and I was really hoping we would get something more of a separate story for Penny. It's finally starting to develop here, and I'm excited about where it's going, even though it's not great right now. He does all this. He convinces the man. You know, he drops the card and runs away, thinking it's better to be here than somewhere really bad. He picks it up. But no sooner does he do that than another man appears and stops him. He tells him he usually keeps his distance, but he finds Penny fascinating. He fights his destiny so hard and yet propels himself toward it at the same time. This is Hades. And Hades has actually taken a personal interest in Penny? It's amazing. What is going on here? (laughs) I mean, we have been continuously finding out things about Penny that surprise us. Right? His... 
level of skill as a traveler and a psychic to the point that the library sought him out for his degree of power. Then we find out he's part magical creature, and now Hades himself. I mean, there's got to be more to this. He tells Penny he needs to think about the big picture. He knows he's worried about the quest right now, but that doesn't matter. Magic always comes back. It may take a millennia and their species verging on extinction, but magic is a carrot the gods use to keep humans in check. This goes right back to what I've been saying about the gods. Finally an answer. Yeah, and this is amazing. I really love this revelation that we get. Magic always comes back, and they utilize it to keep the humans in check. They are maybe trying to teach them a lesson, or maybe just spanking them for doing wrong. Maybe it's a little both of what we had conjectured. Yeah, we said earlier this season... The fact that the gods took away the magic, we thought maybe this is a test. Make them realize how much of a gift this is. You know, we we had a lot of ideas, and it looks pretty similar to where we were going. And I love how every so often the show reminds us there are beings out there that are way more knowing, way more magical than we could ever think of. I mean, this is Hades. This is one of the number one gods, right? And what I mean by that is Ember and Umber were not main gods, right? They were minor smaller, gods. minor. This is a main dude. This is an old god. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up because I think while we're talking about him, it's a good time to do the character review. I say that loosely because we're going to talk about Hades as we know him from ancient Greek mythology. Now, we don't know how similar the Hades of the show will be to that, but it's all we have to go on right now, so we have to discuss. He is one of the ancient Greek gods, god of the underworld, which eventually took his name, a name that means the unseen one. He's regarded as the oldest son of the two titans, Kronos and Rhea, followed by Poseidon and Zeus. A lot of people think about Zeus as the oldest, though he actually wasn't. And Hades also had three sisters, Demeter, Hestia, and Hera. Upon reaching adulthood, Zeus managed to force his father to regurgitate all of the children, If you have read these stories, you will know that supposedly their father ate them and they all continued to grow and develop inside of his body where he was keeping them prisoner because he was afraid of their godlike powers, which was something new. Up until this point, there were only titans. He didn't want anything to threaten their existence, but Zeus managed to get them out of there. And after their release, the six younger gods, along with their allies, challenged the elder gods for power in a divine war that lasted for 10 years and ended in the younger god's victory. They claimed rulership over the cosmos and divided the realm. Zeus received the sky, Poseidon the sea, and Hades the underworld, the unseen realm to which souls of the dead go upon leaving the world, as well as all things beneath the earth. It's said that he didn't really like this position that he got at first, although it was a right fit for him. And if you wonder why no one got the earth... So we have sky, sea, and underworld. Earth was their mother. One of the eldest, Gia. Yeah. Correct. An important thing to talk about when discussing Hades is his wife and queen, Persephone, who he obtained through abduction at the behest of Zeus. Uh, Zeus kind of gave him bad advice here and prodded him into, hey, listen, man, if you want her and she doesn't want you, the way to do this is to steal her. And poor Hades was just so lovesick for Persephone that he listened. And he went and abducted her while she was picking flowers. He stole her away and took her down to the underworld, which made Demeter very unhappy. 
She cast a curse on the land, and there was a great famine. It seemed like all of mankind was going to perish, and one by one the gods came to her to request that she lift it. But she asserted the earth would remain barren until she saw her daughter again. Finally, Zeus intervened via Hermes and requested that Hades give Persephone back. He complied, but not before doing something sneaky first. He secretly gave her a pomegranate seed to eat, which if you are familiar, eating anything in the underworld will bind you to both Hades and the underworld. So we got an email about this from one of our clatchers, Mara, who hasn't written to us since Game of Thrones, but she said the end of this episode got her so hyped. She says, I don't remember if you guys talked about the myth of Persephone once we met her in the show, but this is the part I believe is relevant. When Zeus ordered Hades to return Persephone to her mother, Hades first tricked her into eating pomegranate seeds. It was because she had tasted food from the underworld that she was required to spend the winter months with Hades rather than returning to Earth forever. If you eat or drink anything in this realm, you are bound to it. So I think this was a clever ruse by Hades to trick Penny into being stuck with his destiny. I could be totally off, but as soon as he took a bite into that cupcake, my alarm bells went off. I think she's right. I had the exact same thoughts, so I for sure think she's right. And I wonder if Penny almost knew that, because he did look at that cupcake kind of weird before he ate it. Well, that cupcake looked really good, though. <laughs> like as, as if he was resigning himself to it. Um, that was a big part of the thing with Persephone too, though. She had been down there for a long time and while the gods didn't necessarily need to eat, they still enjoyed it. She talked about how ripe and juicy the pomegranate looked that was laid in front of her. Mara also said, seeing as how we're now meeting another Greek god, was there some explanation about all of the deities that exist? I'm sure there was when Julia met Richard or a talk with Persephone, but I can't remember, nor can I find one. Are we only dealing with the Greek pantheon here? And I'm not sure. I mean, the magician show might be playing a little fast and loose with which ones they decide to put in and which ones are relevant. And also how they're going to react. Will they be exactly the same as they are in the legends? In mythology, Hades was actually a little bit more altruistic. Then he's talked about now. He was portrayed as passive rather than evil. And his role was often in maintaining relative balance. He was a little bit more level-headed than some of his other brothers and sisters. That being said, though, he was depicted as cold and stern, and he held all of his subjects equally accountable to his laws. He cared little about what happened in the upper world, as his primary attention was ensuring none of his subjects ever left. He would become enraged when someone did try to leave, or if someone else tried to steal souls from his realm. So I wonder if that, too, will be relevant when it comes to Penny. I mean, he just set Sylvia free, which he wasn't really supposed to do, but Hades himself offered Penny that Metro card if he wanted. Well, if anyone's going to try to steal his soul, it'll probably be Katie. Yeah, which could be very dangerous. So back to this conversation between Hades and Penny. He also tells him in a thousand years, Penny will barely remember this. Everything that seems so important to him right now will not be. His life starts now, after death. And if he wants to be a part of things, if he wants to get those shackles off, he has to go to Howard and participate. He also says he knows because of Penny's history with his real mom, this is the reason he's always sacrificing himself. All anyone's offering you is a chance to participate and be part of something. 
You've got that whole loner thing, but it's obviously a front. Ever since that trip to Savannah with your real mom, you've been desperate to prove your worth. Yeah, okay, you and everyone else down here that's read my book, well, you, you just think you know me. But it's why you're always sacrificing yourself for people, right? To remind them how important you are to the group. To prove himself. That's pretty big. That is big. And when we spoke to Arjun and we said to him how we felt Penny was so helpful and so sacrificing and he gave us that look. Well, now we know why. He said, I'm not ready to say that just yet. I wonder (laughs) if he knew this was coming, this line here, because it means that it's not always really for the good of others. It's something he thinks he needs to prove. Well, I think he knew that about the character. This wasn't written yet. By the time we spoke to him, season three wasn't written yet. But I think he knew that as one of the character... Traits. Traits, Mm. yeah. That's one of the uh, human things that we always joke about, is being unselfish really unselfish Mm. yeah well we do see the episode be the penny where he is so consumed with the fact that nobody seems to care he's gone don't you realize how many great things i did for you i saved all of your lives at one point or another i'm a big deal feel bad about this and that's kind of the same thing that hades is saying here you're so fixated upon that and this little quest that ultimately won't matter because magic always comes back. If you want to really be a part of something and have a true destiny, it's here. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's very intriguing. And I love the fact that your years as being alive is nothing. It's like when you're one to three years old, you barely remember it. I drop in the bucket. These friends that mean everything to him now, he'll barely think about them. I love when I watch anything in entertainment where it forces me to kind of go out of my normal brain like that and just think outwardly. Oh my God, yeah, what if that is true? And what's so interesting when it comes to both the library and even more so dealings with the underworld and Hades, it seems you need to offer yourself willingly. I mean, he tells Penny he's not going to stop him. He can take that card and go if he wants. Penny has to make the decision for himself, but here... There are amazing things in store. He just needs to choose that. I don't trust him. You don't trust Hades? Well, knowing the next scene where he takes a bite, it looks like right there it was just fishing. Like they brought out the lure, he bit it, and now he's stuck there. But it's not like he didn't know. I mean, at this point, A, he knows that the contract with the library is forever. He has a chance to sneak out of here, but if he doesn't, if he stays... Either way, he's bound to this contract. So it's not like he wouldn't always be stuck here. And B, Hades says, this is where the destiny is. So if you choose to be here, you're going to be a part of this. So I think it's giving the Metro card to Sylvia is where he makes the decision, regardless of what happens later with the cupcake. But I'm wondering, what is his destiny? Now, at this point, I don't believe he's just going to be a librarian. I mean, Hades spoke to him, for God's sakes. There's, for God's sakes, uh, there's got to be a bigger storyline now for him. And I'm very excited to find out. Well, it sounds like these people that are involved in this kind of more exclusive book club, perhaps a select bunch of librarians or workers are involved in some bigger thing. I think there's got to be something in that book that that woman gives to, or gives to him and mm. describes. I wish I remembered exactly what she said, because there might be a clue in that. Well, she says it's about Gil and Stacy, and I don't know if that's the name of it, but it's the greatest love story ever written, supposedly. Hmm. 
She seems a little loopy too. Mm, What's her deal? I don't know. But Howard was a little bizarre as well. I It seems like you could spend a lot of time fighting the library and kind of being a prisoner to your sentence the way Sylvia was, walking around with shackles, reshelving, or you can get involved. Mm. You can commit and be part of this. And he kind of has to give himself over a little, show that he can be trusted, and then these secrets will be revealed to him. I also don't know if it means anything, but right before this, we see him in the aisle that says, history's most egregious errors. Is that some kind of foreshadow? And for what? I don't really know. But that's right after he gave the Metro card to Sylvia and right before he went to the book club. I love this show so much. So we'll see about Kathy and Howard and... Uh, Yeah, from this point on, I mean, hmm, I don't know where they're going with Penny. I hate to speculate too much on the future from what little storyline is left in the books. I do know some. Yeah, leave the speculating to me. I got this. But it's just so interesting. So many storylines that you keep thinking after each episode, oh man, they hit it right there. That's awesome. And then they take it even further. And then even further, and you're like, wow, this is getting awesome. Yeah, the only thing I can say is that I think he finally realized after everything he's been through in his talk with Hades when Hyman was telling him this isn't your story at least not anymore with this group of people maybe it never was you're a sidebar you need to go out and find your own story be the main character maybe Penny heard what Hades said and he thinks this is his story somewhere here But yeah, a lot of questions, a lot of really interesting things to come out of this. Well, that wraps up the plot and takes us to our rating. On a scale of 1 to 10 keys, Jason, what do you give episode 10? Well, it goes without saying I really, really, really enjoyed this episode. So much fun. So many characters who we've been waiting to come out from the third storyline that did so. We got to learn so much more about the fairies They even, I guess I can safe to say, change my mind about the fairies. But I do have to say, if they mess up again, I'll be right back to hating them. (laughs) I got to give this episode a solid nine, which is right up there for this season. Under the Tales of the Seven Keys, Be the Penny, six short stories about magic. It's right up there with them. Those are some of the best. And A Life in the Day. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a good episode. Sounds good. And I'm going to be on par with IMDb. I am giving it an 8.7 which is up from an eight for my last episode and just slightly higher than episode three, The Losses of Magic. I got to say it again. Season three is by far my most favorite season so far. Yeah, that is easy to say. I love that every episode has felt different. They have approached it in a unique way. While I might like some more than others taken as a whole, they have really found their stride and what makes their story of the magicians different from the original. And now we move on to our weekly Twitter poll, at CKC Podcast. Time to vote for this week's MVM. And this week, our four character choices are Julia, Penny, the Fairy Queen, and together, Margot and Elliot. With 39 minutes left, I think it's safe to say we've secured the winners. Another close one. Coming in at fourth place, 4%, Margot and Elliot. We knew that one was a stretch. We don't really know if they did anything, if they resolved anything at this point. Mm-hmm. I agree. Coming in third place was Penny with 13%. I thought he played a major role in the plot line here. This is some of the biggest development we've seen for Penny. We could potentially be setting up his future destiny 
or he could have just made some bad mistakes. I think leaving it on the cliffhanger of that cupcake probably made everybody worried for his future. Every line that Penny delivered in this episode was brilliant. I really enjoyed it, but it's safe to say the other two characters had more weight as far as this episode is concerned. And coming in at second place with 40%, Julia. She was the catalyst at getting the queen on her side, getting her to sacrifice herself to put on that necklace and go into the shark's mouth. Yeah, she had some big moves yet again. And she figured it out. She really outsmarted Irene and her crew. I really enjoyed it. This is the culmination of Julia that we've been waiting for this season. And coming in first place with 43%, so just getting that win, is the Fairy Queen. I gotta say, I never thought we'd be voting her as an MVM, but this episode really does bring her to the forefront. We've had her up here once or twice before, but always for more devious purposes, like MVM for the bad guy. This is the one time we've had her up as a good guy. And it makes complete sense that she would win in the poll. She sacrificed herself. She sacrificed the fairy's main strengths, which is making a deal. And we don't know exactly what she means by saying she's broken it now and there's going to be dire consequences. But we know it's going to be a big deal. This was a big step forward for this character. The fact that she put her faith into a human shows that there's some hope for this woman. I think she acted like a quintessential queen. She made the hard decisions. She stood up for her people. She took charge and did what she needed to do. And our Clatcher's comments under this poll, Melly, Julia was both persuasive and loving. She convinced the fairy queen. And I hope that thanks to this, the fairies will team up with the questers. I hope so too. I just have a feeling Margot's going to mess some shit up. <laughs> and Mel said, fairy queen all the way on this one. Corbin agrees, saying the fairy queen promised blood and she came through. Amir said the fairy queen did something that is so against her people's culture. I think that was very strong of her to save her people that way. And finally, Brian says, definitely Penny. He could have escaped, but he let the girl who betrayed him go instead. True chivalry. He condemned himself to spend years in the underworld. Good guy gets the MVM. I like that. Good guy gets the MVM. So Jason, what do you say? Well, these are all very persuasive reasons. But I have to go with Julia this week. Without Julia getting the queen there, she would have never had the opportunity to be MVM. Of course, Julia would have been stuck there (laughs) if it wasn't for the queen. But I think it's due time that Julia gets my MVM. I thought... Long and hard about her. I know you haven't given it to her all season yet, not even in a pairing. I've given it to her twice alone for Be the Penny and All That Josh, as well as in a pairing for Poached Eggs with Alice. So I only have one Julia left, and I think we could see even more amazing things from her in the upcoming episodes. I want to save that one. I'm giving it to someone that surprisingly I have not awarded all season long, and that's Penny. Even for Be The Penny, I didn't have him. (laughs) But I think that everything you guys are saying about him is true. While his other sacrifices might not have been completely for the sake of others, coming from a bit of a selfish place, I do think it was not easy to give that to Sylvia. It's not one of his favorite people in the world. He genuinely felt for her. He's giving up his relationship with Katie, the quest... Part of this may stem from feeling like he's finally found his story, but I don't know that's selfish so much as an accepting of his destiny and a willingness to do something that 
maybe doesn't feel so great right now, but serves a bigger purpose. And that's amazing. Also, one more thing in talking about MVM. Mara, thank you for pointing out that in last week's review, I had a bit of a goof when announcing MVM. I mistakenly listed Julia as number three when I had already said Q for third place. Yeah, I think you were just counting in order. It was our third person we were talking about, but it was for second place. Second place, place. Yeah. right. I'm sorry about that. Good catch, though. We have some great Clatcher's comments, but before we get to the Clatcher's comments, we have two Patreon Clatcher winners for this month's gear giveaway. And we want to congratulate Carl W. and Chris C. On our Patreon page, we did a video where we drew the names out of the hat. If you haven't seen that, check that out. And we wrote to you guys. If you haven't gotten back to us, please do. You can write to us on Patreon or via email, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. We just need your address and what CKC gear from the store you want. And it's yours for free. Including style and size. Remember to put that in so we know what to get you. Keep in mind, this is every month. So if you haven't won yet, there's still a chance every month. And if you haven't joined yet, there's still a chance. We just released our bonus episode, which we had a lot of great content. A little story about our neighbor who was uh, yelling for help in need outside. A little story? According to Kirk, it was kind of a long story. We got a little wordy and too detailed, but (laughs) it was very intense for us. We got like caught up in reliving, I think, the experience. We gave you some bonus content from the Jade Taylor interview. A bunch of storylines of the news that were very interesting. And one of our biggest stories is the mysterious package company. And one of our Clatchers sent us one of these. And it's very intriguing. It's a mystery that we have to unfold. And it's packages that come every month with a little bit more clues. And the Clatchers are involved in getting this mystery solved. If you know anything about this, you know it's very difficult to find information on these experiences. So this is perhaps a rare look at the inside of what a mysterious package experience is like. Please join us. It's a fun thing to be involved in. We actually just received the final shipping, so you can stay tuned for the ultimate answer to this cliffhanger. It's a big, heavy package. It's very exciting. And we're recording our movie review. And the Patreon Clatchers are almost finished voting for what movie we will be doing. And this could all be part of your journey as well by joining us. Patreon.com forward slash CKC podcast. Join one of the tiers and enjoy the bonus content, movie reviews, and know that you're helping Christine and myself out. Also, don't forget, you have three more episodes to go to decide if there will be an iTunes review raffle. We know that some of you guys sent in new reviews over the past week. Thank you so much for your kind words. Yes, Canuck Fan 2004 gave us an awesome review. And this is a review from Canada's iTunes. And we are only aware of it because Melly sent us a screenshot. Thank you, Melly. We will include you in that group. Don't worry. Now, if we don't say your name and you're in a different country than the U.S., we don't see it. And we're not dogging you, I promise. But please, review anyways. And in America, we got two more reviews from Tab underscore 9000 and Girl Melanie. Thank you so much for those kind words. It means the world to us. So we're getting closer, but we still have a ways to go. We have to hit 100 reviews on the Magician's Channel prior to the end of this season. And if that happens, you will all go into a raffle for a free item of CKC merchandise. Now on to Clatcher's comments. We received four comments after we recorded last week's episode, but before this week's episode, from Nicholas T. via Twitter, Clay R. via email, contact at Coffee Clats Crew, Jessica G. via Facebook, and Jen C., all with the same prediction. Mm. 
they all believed that the he was Prometheus, with Jessica saying, as stated, this show never simply name drops or does anything sans reason. The demon Todd said something about going somewhere. Uh, We all missed the name on that, but Jessica looked it up and she says it's a religious temple usually associated with Southeast Asia. So we are back to some of the older gods, in particular Prometheus, who made man, has always wanted to save us, gave us fire and the ability to be more godlike despite the direct orders of numerous gods, including Zeus, telling him not to do that. So if anybody was to try to help us out, possibly get us our magic back, it does seem like Prometheus would be a safe bet. And we have heard about him on this very show before. It's highly possible. Clay had a little bit of a different theory. He thought that it could have been Ember and Umber's father, wanting to see if the crew who outwitted the children were worthy to keep magic. I like that idea. Which you love because you've always wanted to see Ember and Umber come back, but it wasn't practical given the fact that we think they are dead. What does that mean? We don't know. Gods never really die, but we have yet to see them come back or Reynard. So maybe they do in this world. Uh, but this would be a way to kind of get them back in play. Who would their father be? If he was a major old god, do you have any thoughts from the stories about that? Now, we know that from the stories, Zeus did have twin children, Apollo and Artemis. So could Zeus potentially be Ember and Umber's father? I mean, whoa, the god of all gods. It'd be cool to get him on here. Uh, Even if you're looking at Hermes, the trickster god, same thing. Zeus was his father as well. So um, this could be really interesting. But are we thinking that the he is answered? Was it Hades? Well, they all think it's Prometheus. Um, I think given the level of power and control, the only one I would listen to, Hades is perhaps a more fitting option. Why would Hades set up this big test? I mean, we do kind of see him giving a test to Penny, right? That he has to overcome this thing and choose his own fate. He also says, ah, the magic's going to come back. Don't Mm -hmm. worry about it. Maybe he knows that this is all one big runaround for them to prove themselves. So again, we weren't really affirmed that the he, that the Tremicer was talking about last episode is Hades, but it could be. Or it could be Ember Numbers' father or Prometheus. Very intriguing. I mean, Zeus himself would be a good option. If you're going to listen to anybody, Mm. it's probably going to be Zeus, right? Oh, man, what an episode. Thank you so much to the Clatchers who wrote in and who voted. Remember, if you're not following us yet on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, Facebook, email, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. And don't forget, go to coffeeclatchcrew.com to check out the other channels we do, Westworld, Game of Thrones, Sherlock, Mr. Robot. There's so many there. And check out the gear store. And while you're at it, if you're shopping for necessities around home and you're going to use Amazon, go ahead and click on our Amazon link on our website and do your shopping. It makes Amazon pay us a little bit. With that, we are going to move into our final spoiler section. If you are afraid of those spoilers, we will see you next time when we review episode 1123. For everyone still here, we know the synopsis for episode 11 is the group strategizes as Josh and Julia travel to a familiar place and are given a chance to help. Well, a familiar place. I don't know if I'd put it that way. Once we saw the preview, we hear them saying up until now, the book told them where to go. Mm. Apparently, the book is no longer guiding them. The text says right place, wrong timeline. And who is there? The beast. Holy shit. Yeah, so 
This alternate timeline may be where they can get the key from the fairies. Josh is standing there telling another Josh, help us, Julia and Josh, you're our only hope. Talking to themselves in alternate timelines, this is going to get insane. 23, is that the amount of timelines we have to go through? Is that the number we settle on? What is that? I wonder. The 23rd timeline they're returning to because we know Jane made 39, right? Maybe Maybe. the right one to go to is 23. Very curious. And again, left excited for next week. Ooh, that's good. Just a note, we probably are going to get next week's podcast out in time. It may be a day late because I'm going to California, um, but I'll be working on it on the plane if that's the case. So we will see you for that episode review. Only three weeks left. Things are getting really interesting in the magician's world. After that, we have the Florian Candidate and Will You Play With Me? Patreon Clatchers, keep an eye out for that movie review. And everyone else, till next week, this round's on me. If you stay down here, you've got an amazing destiny ahead of you. You've just got to choose it first. This round is on me! Try again.